Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. This morning we begin a series of sermons from the book of Ephesians that will take us till the beginning of December. And for each of those weeks, we'll be reading the scripture for that, that particular Sunday um, before the sermon. And so I, I have that for you today. We'll be reading from Ephesians, the first chapter, the first 14 verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, Grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood and forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance into the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Maybe the most significant question we could answer in our lives is what we believe our life is for. Now, I understand that that is not a question that all of us necessarily sit down and think of an answer to, write it down on a sheet of paper somewhere, but the way we answer it is revealed in what we place as the priorities in our lives. Maybe we think that uh, the goal of our life is to make money, and so we devote everything to work to earn as much as we can. We invest what we do earn so that we can have more, so that our net worth can be as high as it possibly can be. Maybe we think that our life is about making memories. We think that, you know, at the end of the, at the, end of the day, it's not going to matter how much money I have in the account. What's going to matter is what kind of stories I can tell. And so we devote our lives to creating memories and traveling to new and exotic places so that we have great stories to tell of the life that we have lived. Maybe we say that our life is for the sake of leaving a legacy, whether that's through something we accomplish, through our descendants, whatever it might be. And so every do is done with an eye towards how is this going to be remembered after I'm gone. Maybe we think our life is for achievement, and so everything we do is devoted to working our way up whatever ladder it is, whatever field of work we are in, ascending as high as we can so that we achieve in that field. 
I don't know what you would say your life is for, but I know those examples and many more are put before us each and every day as avenues towards a meaningful life. That if you just had this or if you just did that, then you would know that your life is meaningful, you would know you've accomplished something, and your life would be significant. I don't know what you would say your life is for. But as we begin a journey through the letter of Ephesians today, in the verses we've just heard read, the Apostle Paul gives us a vision of what life is for. And that vision says that ultimately, we're created to praise God. Each and every one of us are unique, created with specific interests and gifts that make us who we are, but at the bottom line, each and every one of us were created to praise God. That is what our life is for. That's why we are here on this earth. We will not fully experience life as God created us to experience it until we learn to praise him with every part of who we are. Now, that might come across as a little egotistical, as if God needs people around him that are just yes-men to constantly remind him of how great he is, but that's not what I'm saying. We were not created to praise God because God is insecure and needs to be reminded of his greatness. We were, we were created to praise God because of what he has done for us. We were created for life with God, and God has done everything necessary for us to have that life, and therefore we respond by praising him. When you've given a gift, it's natural to respond to that gift with praise. Last weekend, my parents were here Labor Weekend with us, and at one point during the weekend, I was wearing a pair of shorts on Saturday, and my mom said something about, oh, I like those shorts that you're wearing, and I said, well, thanks, my wife got them for me. Part of the reason I say that is because I'm still not used to having a wife, and so any opportunity I have to like, speak that out into the world, I have to you know, take that opportunity. But that's an example of responding to a gift that has been given with praise. And that sort of thing is what Paul is describing in, this ver in these verses as what we have been created to do. Uh, that word translated praise in verse 3 is the Greek word from which we get our English word eulogy. And a eulogy is where you speak well of someone, usually at their passing, and hopefully you are speaking well of them. And in this passage... Paul is speaking well of God. He's speaking well of what God has done in Christ. And he invites us to do the same. And to join in in this praise of God with every part of who we are. And he says to do all of this in the present as a preview of the future. God created us for life with him and we step into that life in the present that we, as we experience the reality of the death and resurrection of Jesus at work in our lives. Looking forward to the day... When the resurrected Jesus will return to make all things new and bring us fully into life with him. That's why we've titled this series, Practice Resurrection. It's a phrase that comes from a book by Eugene Peterson on Ephesians. I think it captures the focus of this letter really well. Because Paul calls us to live in the present in light of the future that will one day be ours in Jesus. You know, a sports team doesn't practice just for the sake of practice. They do it to prepare for the game. They, they do it to prepare for when they were fully put into place, all that they have learned in their preparation. And I think that's a helpful way to summarize the sort of life that the book of Ephesians calls us to, which begins with this introduction that Dennis has just read for us. Verses 3 to 14 are one long, complicated sentence. It's one sentence, and it's 202 words in the original Greek. And it is all moving towards praise of God. 
When I was in seminary, I once had a class that was an independent study, uh, and I was translating through the book of Ephesians. So that meant once a week, I went to my professor's office, and I pretended to understand what Greek was because I couldn't hide behind other students in the class. And right before the semester began, I ran into that professor one day, and he said, you know, we had already agreed that I was going to be doing this class, and we were going to be studying Ephesians together. And he said, you know, I thought about it after we talked the other day, and since we're doing Ephesians, that means the first time we get together, you're going to be translating the longest and most complicated sentence in the entire New Testament. And I thought, well, thanks for the encouragement, I guess. Because this is a long, confusing sentence. You can maybe even feel that as we hear it read in English, that there is a lot going on in these verses. It's like Paul has a lot to say, and he doesn't have a lot of time to say it, so he's just throwing it all out there as much as he can, as quickly as possible, so that we can just be overwhelmed by it all. And in case you do feel overwhelmed, what I want to do is try to summarize this passage with one sentence, and then walk through it together. In a sentence, I think what Paul is saying in this passage is this up on the screen. All of God has been working for all of time to save all of you. So praise him. All of God has been working for all of time to save all of you, so praise him. I understand that's a long and complicated sentence, but in my defense, it is nowhere near as long or as complicated as the sentence Paul wrote, so you can at least grant me that. And that is the heartbeat of this passage. And Paul tells us this through repetition. You might have noticed as this being read that three different times Paul will say that God has done something for the praise of his glory or for the praise of his glorious grace. And it's the repetition of that phrase that helps us break this sentence down as Paul will describe something, what God has done, and then call us to praise God for it and then start again. And so I'd like to work through each of those sections to help us see this life of praise God is calling us into. We're called to praise God the Father in verses 3 to 6 because of the blessing he has poured out on us in Christ. God the Father sent his son Jesus to earth to die and rise from the dead, and that means that you and I, when we follow Jesus, have everything that we need. Now I understand that saying in Jesus you have everything that you need might sound like a bold statement, but Paul says it's true. So I want to spend some time on what he has to say about what Jesus has done so that it can be true and then come back to why it can be true for us. This can be true because in Christ, God has chosen us to be his children from before the foundation of the world. Now, there's nothing in this passage that suggests that he's individually selected some people to be his children and he's left out others. But what Paul is saying is that from before creation itself, the God who rules over all things had a plan to make us his children. God is not caught off guard by our sin. From before creation, he had a plan to make anyone who desired to follow him his children. And that is what the New Testament means when it talks about this idea of predestination. It's not a matter of saying some people get to be his children and some people don't, and they, and they have no say in the matter. It means that God has acted so that anyone who desires to be a part of his people can experience that life in Christ. Tonight here at church, have our, our kickoff for our fall small groups, and this is one last not-so-subtle attempt at me to play, so to encourage you to come to it. But I can say to you that if you come to that event at 6 o'clock tonight out here in the fellowship hall, what you will experience is dinner and fellowship and learning about what small groups are going to look like for the fall and meeting with your small group and having some time to talk and pray together as you look forward to the fall. Now, as I say all of that, I am saying that this is what will happen for those that come to participate in this. I'm not making a statement about who does or does not get to come and be a part of it. 
I'm saying that this is what will happen for this group of people, and anyone can come and join this group of people, and that is what the New Testament means when it talks about this idea of predestination. Paul is saying God has marked out this life of spiritual blessing in Christ from before creation, and anyone that wants to be a part of it can have it. And we're able to experience it because God has adopted us into his family. Adoption was a part of Paul's world, just like how it's a part of ours, although adoption looked a little different in the Roman Empire. It was always essentially done for the sake of securing an inheritance and continuing on a family line. So we're told from history that Julius Caesar, as he gets older, he doesn't have any legitimate heirs, and so he adopts his nephew, Octavian, to continue on his legacy, continue on his family line, that after Julius Caesar is assassinated, then Octavian becomes Caesar Augustus and becomes the emperor of Rome. That's the world of adoption Paul and his readers are familiar with, but Paul tweaks that a little bit. He says that God does not adopt us for his sake. He adopts us for our sake. He doesn't adopt us so that his legacy is protected so that he can continue on his family line. He does it so we can be a part of his royal family even when we don't deserve it. He doesn't adopt us because he has no heirs, but because he wants as many people as possible to share in his inheritance. We didn't earn it. We haven't done anything to contribute to the cause. Yet God has made it possible for us to be called his daughters and his sons because his one true son gave his life for us. And all of that means that we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. And again, I understand that can sound like a bold claim. I mean, we live in a fallen world. I have bills to pay. I have aches and pains when I get up in the morning, not to mention all the things that are actually wrong with the world. How can you say that in Jesus, I have everything that I could ever need? Yet Paul says all of that is superseded by the fact that God has chosen us and adopted us into his family. Regardless of what might be true about our current circumstances, we have said yes to Jesus We have everything that we need. That's not sticking our head in the sand. Paul's not sitting in some ivory tower as he writes this. Paul is sitting in a prison cell as he writes these words. Paul knew personally that following Jesus did not make life get better for you. You could make the case pretty easily that when Paul said yes to following Jesus, it made his life significantly worse. Following Jesus does not get rid of all our problems, but what it does mean is that because God has made us a part of his family, we have the assurance we need. God's ruling that we are his children is ultimately the only ruling that matters. No matter what we endure, if we've said yes to Jesus, we can know that his purposes for us surpass everything else. When fears about the future weigh up, down, we remind ourselves that our ultimate future is wrapped up in the hope of the gospel. When uncertainty abounds in the present, we remind ourselves that from before time itself, God has been working to make us his children, and a father that loves us much will not walk away. When our past comes knocking on the door, reminding us of our regrets, we remind ourselves that God has forgiven our sin, so our past doesn't define us anymore. Instead, we can step right right now into the life God desires for us, a life that is called holy and blameless there in verse 4. In our culture, those terms might sound arrogant or presumptuous that someone that thinks they're holy and blameless is just looking down their nose at everyone else. That's not what Paul is saying. He's describing the life we were created for. God desires for us to be his people. He desires that we would be set apart for his purposes, a life of holy 
Godliness is a life that is tr- what true human flourishing looks like. And that sort of life is available to us because God sent his son, Jesus, who died and rose from the dead for us so that we might be a part of his family. And that is a reason to praise God. And this has all been made available through, the, through God's abundant grace. We didn't deserve it, yet it has been lavished on us in Jesus. Grace doesn't say that we weren't really that bad. Grace doesn't sweep it under the rug. It doesn't say what we've done wrong doesn't really matter. Grace says we deserve punishment for our rebellion against God, and yet that doesn't have to be the end of the story because Jesus said, shed his blood for us. And that's why we talk so much about the death of Jesus on the cross. It might sound odd to talk about death that happened 2,000 years ago, and somehow that affects my life in the present, but it is in that moment where Jesus gives up his life on the cross as a sacrifice our sins that justice and grace of God meet fully. The price for our sin that we could not pay ourselves was paid by Jesus with his own blood. The forgiveness for our wrongdoing against God made available in Jesus because of the riches of God's grace. Because that has been done, we can be redeemed, bought back from the masters of sin and death and brought into the family of God. Jesus has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. And grace like that is abundant. Look again at the end of verse 7 and the beginning of verse 8. He says that in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. This is not the portrait of someone who is stingy. I don't know about you, but it seems like sometimes we can think of grace as if it is an account that will one day run out. That sure, God gave me grace when I said yes to following him back in the past, and that's covered me up to this point, but I'm not perfect, and I've done plenty of bad things along the way, so maybe one day that account's going to run out, and I will have to pay up. And if that's our thinking about grace, we have not understood how generous our Father is. He lavishes his grace on us so that we might be made new. He pours out his grace like a kid covered in presents at their first Christmas. Grace is greater than any sin we could ever commit. God is not up in heaven keeping tabs on our account, hoping that one day he will pay up. He is abundant as he lavishes grace on us. A few weeks ago, Ron Petrovics came by the church one afternoon, and he had the back of his truck full of sweet corn, and he asked me how many ears of sweet corn Whitney and I wanted. Now, Whitney and I both of sweet corn, but at the end of the day, we're two people. And so I said, I distinctly remember saying, for the record, I don't know, six or eight at most. And the next thing I knew, there were 84 ears of corn in the back of my car. I counted. (laughs) And I think that's a little bit of a glimpse into the abundance of grace. We don't exhaust it. It's not an account that dries up. It's new every day inviting us into the life with God we were created to live. And we see all that come together when we look at Jesus' resurrection. Because in its day, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus did not register much with the authorities. From what we can tell from history, there was no Roman emperor that knew the name Jesus of Nazareth while he was on the earth. There are some non-Christian historians that were alive around that time that write about this guy named Jesus of Nazareth. But if you just went off of what they wrote, you wouldn't really find anything all that significant. There were all sorts of Jewish figures in the first century like Jesus who claimed to be from God in some way. 
There were all sorts of people that Roman soldiers crucified in the first century. Jesus doesn't stand out for any of those reasons. But what does make him stand out is the fact that his death was not the end of his story. Because Jesus walked out of his tomb. That means we have someone very different on our hands. He's not just a rev- another revolutionary that came on the scene that the Romans dealt with. He is the re- if he's resurrected from the dead, then he is the son of God. And if he is the son of God, then all of world history hinges around him. And if all of world history hinges around him, that means he is the final definitive revelation of who God is and what God is doing in the world and how we are called to respond. God had been making himself known for centuries before Jesus came along. He told Abraham that through Abraham's descendants, all the nations of the world would be blessed. He told David that one of David's descendants would come and would reign on his throne forever. He had told Moses that one day, or he had told the people through Moses, I should say, that one day there's going to be someone else who's going to come who's going to be like Moses, and when he comes, you should listen to him. He had given Daniel this this picture of someone who would come who was like a son of man, who would come and reign forever because he'd been given authority by God to reign over all things. He had given this image to Isaiah of a suffering servant who was going to come, and in some way through his suffering, God's people were going to be healed. God had given these puzzle pieces along the way, but Jesus was the final picture, the climax of the story that all of history had been waiting to see fulfilled with bated breath. He came to complete all of God's purposes. He came to put right what we had wrong. He came to end the reign of sin and death so that we might have life with God through his death and resurrection. But this is not just something Jesus came to do for humanity. There at the end of verse 10, it says that the end goal of all of this that he is describing that Jesus has done is to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. We can get focused in on salvation as it's this personal thing and it's between me and God and it's just for what happens after I die. But the work of Jesus is so much broader. Jesus did not just come to make humanity right with God. He came to make all things new. And that's the end of the story. The end of the story is not us going off to float somewhere on a cloud. It is God coming to earth to make all things new. When sin entered the world, it did not just break our relationship with God. It broke creation's relationship with itself. So Jesus does not just come to heal our hearts. He came to heal all things. He, came to he-, he is coming to heal natural disasters and disease and broken homes and injustice. And that is the purpose of God's work through Jesus. Jesus came to this earth to establish a beachhead from which we could begin the process of making all things new that will be completed when he returns. And as we look forward to that day, as we follow Jesus in the present, we are invited to participate in that mission to make all things right. It's not some task that God has said he is going to complete himself way off in the future. It is a task he invites us to participate in here and now. Fulfilling this mission is what we've been tasked with doing as God's people. We've not been called to gather here and remember what God had done way back in the past or look for what he's going to do way off in the future. We're not called to just do those things, but to be the hands and feet of Jesus where we are now. We offer the world a preview of the life that is to come as we practice resurrection together. In a world that seems to look for any excuse it can find to be angry, we love our enemies. 
In a world that can be harsh and bitter, we are forgiving and generous even when others don't deserve it. In a world that says you have to make a name for yourself, we choose humble service because God sees us when we do. Jesus came to this earth to make all things new, including us, and he invites us to be a part of that work, and that is why we praise God. And we participate in that mission in the present, confident of our future, because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. The gospel does not just say that God was with his people in the past, or he will be with them at some point in the future, but that he is with us now through the Holy Spirit, and that is a comfort when life is chaotic and uncertain. Even if it seems like everything is against us, the presence of the Holy Spirit reminds us that God is near. He's not forgotten or abandoned us. He is not done working, but he is right here with us, leading us into God's purposes. And the presence of the Holy Spirit promises us that God will one day deliver us into everything he has promised. And in that way, the Holy Spirit functions like a seal or a deposit. My guess is you have things like this. We got a stamp as a wedding gift. It has our name and our address on it to be able to use as a return address on mail. And if you were to get a piece of mail from us, you could verify that it had really come from us and know our address because it has that stamp on it. And in Paul's day, you put a seal on something to verify that you owned it, to confirm that it was valid, to guarantee the quality of it. If a document had your seal on it, it confirmed that you that you sent it and that you stood behind its message. If you made a piece of pottery and put your seal on it, that guaranteed that you stood behind your work. When Jesus was put in the tomb after he died, we're told in the Gospels that Pilate puts his seal over the rock in front of the tomb, which meant that if, that, if someone broke in to try to steal Jesus' body, everyone would know because the seal had been broken, and they would know that as they broke that seal, they were, they were breaking the authority of the Roman Empire. And Paul uses that image to describe the Holy Spirit. If you've said yes to Jesus, if you've been given the Holy Spirit, God's seal is on you. You are his. God stands by you as his child. And that reality in the present guarantees the future like a deposit. If you've ever put down a down payment on a house or a car or something like that, you know that functions like paying a part of the amount now as a promise that you will pay the rest of it in the future. And in that way, Paul says that the presence of the Holy Spirit with us here and now is a deposit that will be paid in full one day. God guarantees he will deliver you into life with him fully in the future as he stands with you in the present. We step into that life now in part through his presence with us as we practice resurrection looking forward to the day when Christ will return and make us and all things new. And that is why we praise him. Because all of God has been working for all of time to save all of you. So praise him. And that's our summary. And as we wrap up, I'd like to walk through it one more time. If you look at those three sections we used as an outline for this morning, you will see that a different member of the Trinity is at the focus of each section. Verses 3 to 6 focuses on the Father. Verses 7 to 12 focuses on the Son. Verses 13 and 14 focus on the Holy Spirit. It's not, that quite, it's not quite that clean cut, uh, it, because talking about the Trinity never is. But there is a unified progression that the Father has set 
and because the Son has died and risen from the dead, now the Holy Spirit dwells among God's people. And every member of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is a part of this plan to make us right with God, to make all things new. All of God has been working. And that was the plan all along. Sending Jesus was not God's plan B. The purpose of human history is not for us to make a good life for ourselves. Life is not some meaningless chaos, so do whatever you want because one day you'll die and none of it will matter. No, God has been working from the very beginning of creation to make things right. That was why Jesus came to earth. That's what we are invited to be a part of. God's purposes for us and for our world are at the center of all history. All of God has been working for all of time. And he has done that so that every part of us can be redeemed. When I say God has been working to say all, save all of you, I am speaking to you individually, if that makes sense. I'm not, I'm not saying that God has done this so that everyone can generally be saved or something like that. I am saying that God is working to save all of you in the sense that he is working to save every part of your life. He's called you his child. He's called you holy and blameless. He has lavished grace on you. He's not called you to give him his Sundays, and that's pretty much it. He's not called you to do whatever you want as long as you give a tenth of your income at the end of the day. He's come to redeem every part of who you are. He's come to redeem the parts that you think are pretty good already and the parts that you think are just for yourself and the parts of you that you hope no one ever cares, uh, finds out about. He's come to redeem every part of you so that you can be a part of his purposes to extend the reach of that redemption into all the world. Jesus is the king of the universe and he wants you to be a part of his purpose to make all things new as you walk in life with him. All of God has been working for all of time to save all of you. And that's why we respond with praise. If all the things Paul lines out in these verses are true, then God is worthy of nothing less. If God has loved us when we were unlovable, pursued us when we had run away, poured out grace that we didn't deserve, brought us back from death, into life, pulled us from the clutches of darkness and into his light, then it makes no sense that we would respond with anything less then full praise for all time. If God has done all this, it makes no sense to put ourselves or anything else at the center of our world. If this is the life that's available for all people, it makes no sense that we would waste our time and energy on any message apart from the one that says Jesus reigns and he is making all things new. All of God has been working for all of time to save all of you, so praise him. It's the life we were created for. If you've never followed Jesus, don't hesitate another second. Let's have a conversation about what it looks like to go into the waters of baptism and step into new life in Christ. If you have sin to repent of, if you're facing difficulty and need encouragement or prayer, or whatever it is, give that to him. Find people to pray with you and for you to walk alongside you as you follow Jesus. If you need someone to just encourage you through difficulty, seek us out so we can walk with you into life with Jesus. Let's give God everything that he deserves so that we can fully experience the life he desires for us. Let's pray. God, we thank you and we praise you for all that you've done for us in Christ to make us your children. That even though we were unworthy, you have made us new and brought us into life with you. God, we thank you and praise you. And if we did that for all of time, it would not be enough. So as we begin this journey through the book of Ephesians, as we enter into the fall uh, with 
routines changing and everything else, God, we ask that this story that encapsulates all of us and all of history would be at the center of our minds and our hearts. That our concern in all things, first and foremost, would be on who you are and what you're doing in us and in the world so that we can participate in this life you desire for us and that we might be a part of your mission to make all things new. Give us wisdom, fill us with your spirit as we pursue that. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French.